0: Chapter 4 of The Empire of Russia, From the Remotest Periods to the Present Time. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Bascom. The Empire of Russia, From the Remotest Periods to the Present Time. By John S. C. Abbott. Chapter 4 Years of War and Woe. From 1092 to 1167 Character of Vesevelad Succession of Sviatopolk His Discomfiture Deplorable Condition of Russia Death of Sviatopolk His Character Accession of Monomak Curious Festival at Kiev Energy of Monomak Alarm of the Emperor at Constantinople Horrors of War Death of Monomach His Remarkable Character Pious Letter to His Children Accession of Mstislav His Short but Stormy Reign Struggles for the Throne Final Victory of Yeziuslav Moscow in the Province of Suzdal Death of Yeziuslav Wonderful Career of Rostislav RISING POWER OF MOSCOW Georgievich, PRINCE OF MOSCOW The Sevolod had the reputation of having been a man of piety, but he was quite destitute of that force of character which one required to hold the realm in such stormy times. He was a man of great humanity and of unblemished morals. The woes which desolated his realms and which he was utterly unable to avert crushed his spirit and hastened his death perceiving that his dying hour was at hand he sent for his two sons vladimir and rostislav and the sorrowing old man breathed his last in their arms the Sevillod was the favorite son of yaroslav the great and his father with his dying breath had expressed the wish that the Sevalod, when death should come to him might be placed in the tomb by his side these affectionate wishes of the dying father were gratified and the remains of vissevolod were deposited with the most imposing ceremonies of those days in the church of saint sophia by the side of those of his father the people forgetting his weakness and remembering only his amiability wept at his burial vladimir the eldest son of vissevolod with great magnanimity surrendered the crown to his cousin sviatopolk saying his father was older than mine, and reigned at Kiev before my father. I wished to avoid dissension and the horrors of civil war. He then proclaimed Sviatopolk sovereign of Russia. The new sovereign had been feudal lord of the province of Novgorod. He, however, soon left his northern capital to take up his residence in the more imperial palaces of Kiev. But disaster seemed to be the doom of Russia and the sounds of rejoicing which attended his accession to the throne had hardly died away ere a new scene of woe burst upon the devoted land. The young king was rash and headstrong. He provoked the ire of one of the strong neighboring provinces, which was under the sway of an energetic feudal prince, ostensibly a vassal of the crown, but who, in his pride and power, arrogated independence. The banners of a hostile army were soon approaching Kiev, Sviatopolk marched heroically to meet them. A battle was fought in which he and his army were awfully defeated. Thousands were driven by the conquerors into a stream swollen by the rains where they miserably perished. The fugitives, led by Sviatopolk, in dismay fled back to Kiev and took refuge behind the walls of the city. The enemy pressed on, ravaging, With the most cruel desolation the whole region around kiev and in a second battle conquered the king and drove him out of his realms the whole of southern russia was abandoned to barbaric destruction nestor gives a graphic sketch of the misery which prevailed one saw everywhere he writes villages in flames churches houses granaries were reduced to heaps of ashes and the unfortunate citizens were either expiring beneath the blows of their enemies or were awaiting death with terror prisoners half naked were dragged in chains to the most distant and savage regions as they toiled along they said weeping one to another i am from such a village and i am from such a village no horses or cattle were to be seen upon our plains the fields were abandoned to weeds, the ferocious beasts ranged the places but recently occupied by Christians. The whole reign of Sviatopolk, which continued until the year 1113, was one continued storm of war. It would only weary the reader to endeavor to disentangle the labyrinth of confusion, and to describe the ebbings and floodings of battle. Every man's hand was against his neighbor, and friends to-day were foes to-morrow. Sviatopolk himself was one of the most imperfect of men. He was perfidious, ungrateful, and suspicious, haughty in prosperity, mean and cringing in adversity. His religion was the inspiration of superstition and cowardice, not of intelligence and love. Whenever he embarked upon any important expedition, he took an ecclesiastic to the tomb of Saint Theodosius, there to implore the blessing of heaven. If successful in the enterprise, he returned to the tomb to give thanks this was the beginning and end of his piety. Without any scruple he violated the most sacred laws of morality, the marriage vow was entirely disregarded, and he was ever ready to commit any crime which would afford gratification to his passions, or which would advance his interests. The death of Sviatopolk occurred in a season of general anarchy, and it was uncertain who would seize the throne. The citizens of Kiev met in solemn and anxious assembly, and offered the crown to an illustrious noble, Monomach, a brother of Sviatopolk, and a man who had acquired renown in many enterprises of most desperate daring. In truth it required energy and courage of no ordinary character for a man at that time to accept the crown. Innumerable assailants would immediately fall upon him, putting to the most imminent peril not only the crown, but the head which wore it. By the Russian custom of descent, the crown incontestably belonged to the oldest son of Sviatoslav and Monomak, out of regard to his rights, declined the proffered gift. This refusal was accompanied by the most melancholy results. A terrible tumult broke out in the city. There was no arm of law sufficiently powerful to restrain the mob, and anarchy, with all its desolation, reigned for a time triumphant. A deputation of the most influential citizens of Kiev was immediately sent to Monomak, with the most earnest entreaty, that he would hasten to rescue them and their city from the impending ruin. The heroic prince could not turn a deaf ear to this appeal. He hastened to the city, where his presence, combined with the knowledge which all had of his energy and courage, at once appeased the tumult. He ascended the throne, greeted by the acclamations of the whole city. No opposition ventured to manifest itself, and Monomach was soon in the undisputed possession of power. Nothing can give one a more vivid idea of the state of the times than the festivals appointed in honor of the new reign as described by the ancient annalists. The bones of the two saints were transferred from one church to another in the city. A magnificent coffin of silver, embellished with gold, precious stones, and bas reliefs so exquisitely carved as to excite the admiration even of the Grecian artists, contained the sacred relics, and excited the wonder and veneration of the whole multitude the imposing ceremony drew to Kiev the princes, the clergy, the lords, the warriors, even from the most distant parts of the empire. The gates of the city and the streets were encumbered with such multitudes that, in order to open a passage for the clergy with the sarcophagus, the monarch caused cloths, garments, precious furs, and pieces of silver to be scattered, to draw away the throng. A luxurious feast was given to the princes, AND FOR THREE DAYS ALL THE POOR OF THE CITY WERE ENTERTAINED AT THE EXPENSE OF THE PUBLIC TREASURE Monomach NOW FITTED OUT SUNDRY EXPEDITIONS UNDER HIS ENTERPRISING SON TO EXTEND THE TERRITORIES OF RUSSIA AND TO BRING TUMULTUOUS TRIBES AND NATIONS INTO SUBJUGATION AND ORDER HIS SON Mstislav WAS SENT INTO THE COUNTRY OF THE CHUDS NOW LIVONIA ON THE SHORES OF THE BALTIC HE OVERRAN THE TERRITORY SEIZED THE CAPITAL AND ESTABLISHED ORDER His son, Bissevelad, who was stationed at Novgorod, made an expedition into Finland. His army experienced inconceivable sufferings in that cold, inhospitable clime. Still they overawed the inhabitants and secured tranquility. Another son, Georges, marched to the Volga, embarked his army in a fleet of barges, and floated along the stream to eastern Bulgaria, conquered an army raised to oppose him, and returned to his principality laden with booty. Another son, Yeropolk, assailed the tumultuous tribes upon the dawn. Brilliant success accompanied his enterprise. Among his captives he found one maiden of such rare beauty that he made her his wife. At the same time the kingdom of Russia was invaded by barbarous hordes from the shores of the Caspian. Monomach himself headed an army and assailed the invaders with such impetuosity that they were driven with much loss back again to their wilds. The military renown of Monomach thus attained made his name a terror even to the most distant tribes and, for a time, held in awe those turbulent spirits who had been filling the world with violence. Elated by his conquests, Monomach fitted out an expedition to Greece. A large army descended the Daniper, took possession of Thrace, and threatened Adrianople. The emperor, in great alarm, sent ambassadors to Monomach with the most precious presents. There was a cornelian exquisitely cut and set, a golden chain and necklace, a crown of gold, and most precious of all, a crucifix made of wood of the true cross. The Metropolitan Bishop of Ephesus, who was sent with these presents, was authorized, in the name of the Church and of the Empire, to place the crown upon the brow of Monomach in gorgeous coronation in the Cathedral Church of Kiev, and to proclaim Monomach Emperor of Russia. This crown, called the Golden Bonnet of Monomach, is still preserved in the museum of antiquities at moscow these were dark and awful days horrible as war now is it was then attended with woes now unknown gleb prince of minsk with a ferocious band attacked the city of slutsk after a terrible scene of carnage in which most of those capable of bearing arms were slain the city was burned to ashes and all the survivors men women and children were driven off as captives to the banks of the dwina where they were incorporated with the tribe of their savage conqueror. In revenge, Monomok sent his son Yeropolk to Drutsk, one of the cities of Gleb. No pen can depict the horrors of the assault. After a few hours of dismay, shriekings, and blood, the city was in ashes, and the wretched victims of man's pride and revenge were conducted to the vicinity of Kiev, where they reared their huts, and in widowhood, orphanage, and penury commenced life anew. Gleb himself in this foray was taken prisoner, conducted to Kiev, and detained there a captive until he died. Monomach reigned thirteen years, during which time he was incessantly engaged in wars with the audacious nobles of the provinces who refused to recognize his supremacy, and many of whom were equal to him in power. He died May 19, 1126, in the 73rd year of his age, renowned say the ancient annalists for the splendour of his victories and the purity of his morals he was fully conscious of the approach of death and seems to have been sustained in that trying hour by the consolations of religion he lived in an age of darkness and of tumult but he was a man of prayer and according to the light he had he walked humbly with god commending his soul to the saviour he fell asleep It is recorded that he was a man of such lively emotions that his voice often trembled and his eyes were filled with tears as he implored god's blessing upon his distracted country he wrote just before his death a long letter to his children conceived in the most lovely spirit of piety we have space but for a few extracts from these christian counsels of a dying father the whole letter written on parchment is still preserved in the archives of the monarchy the foundation of all virtue he wrote is the fear of god and the love of man o my dear children praise god and love your fellow-men it is not fasting it is not solitude it is not a monastic life which will secure for you the divine approval it is doing good to your fellow-creatures alone never forget the poor take care of them and ever remember that your wealth comes from god and that it is only entrusted to you for a short time Do not hoard up your riches, that is contrary to the precepts of the Savior. Be a father to the orphans, the protectors of the widows, and never permit the powerful to oppress the weak. Never take the name of God in vain, and never violate your oath. Do not envy the triumph of the wicked, or the success of the impious, but abstain from everything that is wrong. Banish from your hearts all the suggestions of pride, and remember that we are all perishable. Today full of life, tomorrow in the tomb. Regard with horror falsehood, intemperance, and, and impurity. Vice is equally dangerous to the body and to the soul. Treat aged men with the same respect with which you would treat your parents, and love all men as your brothers. When you make a journey in your provinces, do not suffer the members of your suite to inflict the least injury upon the inhabitants. Treat with particular respect strangers of whatever quality and if you cannot confer upon them favors treat them with a spirit of benevolence since upon the manner with which they are treated depends the good or evil report which they will take back with them to their own land salute every one whom you meet love your wives but do not permit them to govern you when you have learned anything useful endeavor to imprint it upon your memory and be always seeking to acquire information My father spoke five languages, a fact which excited the admiration of strangers. Guard against idleness, which is the mother of all vices. Man ought always to be occupied. When you are travelling on horseback, instead of allowing your mind to wander upon vain thoughts, recite your prayers, or at least repeat the shortest and best of them all. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Never retire at night without falling upon your knees before God in prayer, and never let the sun find you in your bed. Always go to church at an early hour in the morning to offer to God the homage of your first and freshest thoughts. This was the custom of my father and of all the pious people who surrounded him. With the first rays of the sun they praised the Lord and exclaimed with fervor, Condescend, O Lord, with thy divine light to illumine my soul. The faults of Monimach were those of his age, Non vitia hominis, sed vitia seculi. But his virtues were truly Christian. And it can hardly be doubted that as his earthly crown dropped from his brow he received a brighter crown in heaven the devastations of the barbarians in that day were so awful burning cities and churches and massacring women and children that they were regarded as enemies of the human race and were pursued with exterminating vengeance monomach left several children and a third wife one of his wives gaida was a daughter of harold king of england his oldest son, Mstislav, succeeded to the crown. His brothers received as their inheritance the government of extensive provinces. The new monarch, inheriting the energies and the virtues of his illustrious sire, had long been renowned. The barbarians east of the Volga, as soon as they heard of the death of Monomak, thought that Russia would fall an easy prey to their arms. In immense numbers they crossed the river, spreading far and wide the most awful devastation. But Mstislav fell upon them with such impetuosity that they were routed with great slaughter, and driven back to their wilds. Their chastisement was so severe that, for a long time, they were intimidated from any further incursions. With wonderful energy Mstislav attacked many of the tributary nations, who had claimed a sort of independence, and who were ever rising in insurrection. He speedily brought them into subjugation to his sway, and placed over them rulers devoted to his interests. In the dead of winter, an expedition was marched against the Chudis, who inhabited the southern shores of the Bay of Finland. The men were put to death, the cities and villages burned, the women and children were brought away as captives and incorporated with the Russian people. Mstislav reigned but about four years, when he suddenly died in the sixtieth year of his age. His whole reign was an incessant warfare with insurgent chiefs and barbarian invaders, There is an awful record at this time of the scourge of famine added to the miseries of war all the northern provinces suffered terribly from this frown of god immense quantities of snow covered the ground even to the month of may the snow then melted suddenly with heavy rains deluging the fields with water which slowly retired converting the country into a widespread marsh it was very late before any seed could be sown The grain had but just begun to sprout when myriads of locusts appeared, devouring every green thing. A heavy frost early in the autumn destroyed the few fields the locusts had spared, and then commenced the horrors of a universal famine. Men, women, and children, wasted and haggard, wandered over the fields seeking green leaves and roots, and dropped dead in their wanderings. The fields and the public places were covered with putrefying corpses, which the living had not strength to bury. A fetid miasma, ascending from this cause, added pestilence to famine, and woes ensued too awful to be described. Immediately after the death of Mstislav, the inhabitants of Kiev assembled and invited his brother, Vladimirovich, to assume the crown. This prince then resided at Novgorod, which city he at once left for the capital he proved to be a feeble prince and the lords of the remote principalities assuming independence bade defiance to his authority there was no longer any central power and russia instead of being a united kingdom became a conglomeration of antagonistic states every feudal lord marshalling his serfs in warfare against his neighbour in the midst of this state of universal anarchy caused by the weakness of a virtuous prince who had not sufficient energy to reign vladimirovich died in 1139 the death of the king was a signal for a general outbreak a multitude of princes rushing to seize the crown vyacheslav prince of a large province called Pereyaslav, was the first to reach kiev with his army the inhabitants of the city to avoid the horrors of war marched in procession to meet him and conducted him in triumph to the throne Vyacheslav had hardly grasped the sceptre and stationed his army within the walls when from the steeples of the city the banners of another advancing host were seen gleaming in the distance and soon the tramp of their horsemen and the defiant tones of the trumpet were heard as another and far more mighty host encircled the city this new army was led by the prince of a province called vyuchigorod vyacheslav convinced of the impossibility of resisting such a power as vsevolod had brought against kiev immediately consented to retire and to surrender the throne to his more powerful rival Vsevolod entered the city in triumph and established himself firmly in power there is nothing of interest to be recorded during his reign of seven years save that russia was swept by incessant billows of flame and blood the princes of the provinces were ever rising against his authority combinations were formed to dethrone the king and the king formed combinations to crush his enemies the hungarians the swedes the danes the poles all made war against this energetic prince but with an iron hand he smote them down toil and care soon exhausted his frame and he was prostrate on his dying bed bequeathing his throne to his brother igor he died leaving behind him the reputation of having been one of the most energetic of the kings of this blood-deluged land Igor was fully conscious of the perils he thus inherited. He was very unpopular with the inhabitants of Kiev, and loud murmurs greeted his accession to power. A conspiracy was formed among the most influential inhabitants of Kiev, and a secret embassage was sent to the grand prince, Yziaslav, a descendant of Monomach, inviting him to come and with their aid take possession of the throne. The prince attended the summons with alacrity, and marched with a powerful army to kiev igor was vanquished in a sanguinary battle taken captive imprisoned in a convent and yeziaslav became the nominal monarch of russia sviatoslav the brother of igor overwhelmed with anguish in view of his brother's fall and captivity traversed the expanse of russia to enlist the sympathies of the distant princes to march for the rescue of the captive he was quite successful An allied army was soon raised, and, under determined leaders, was on the march for Kiev. The king, Yisiuslav, with his troops, advanced to meet them. In the meantime Igor, crushed by misfortune and hopeless of deliverance, sought solace for his woes in religion. "'For a long time,' said he, "'I have desired to consecrate my heart to God. Even in the height of prosperity this was my strongest wish. What can be more proper for me now that I am at the very gates of the tomb?' For eight days he laid in his cell, expecting every moment to breathe his last, and then, reviving a little, he received the tonsure from the hands of the bishop, and renouncing the world and all its cares and ambitions, devoted himself to the prayers and devotions of the monk. The king pressed Sviatoslav with superior forces, conquered him in several battles, and drove him a fugitive into dense forests and into distant wilds sviatoslav like his brother weary of the storms of life also sought the solace which religion affords to the weary and the heart-stricken pursued by his relentless foe he came to a little village called moscow far back in the interior this is the first intimation history gives of this now renowned capital of the most extensive monarchy upon the globe a prince named george's reigned here over the extensive province then called Suzdal who received the fugitive with heartfelt sympathy aided by georges and several of the surrounding princes another army was raised and sviatoslav commenced a triumphal march sweeping all opposition before him until he arrived a conqueror before the walls of novgorod the people of kiev enraged by the success of the foe of their popular king rose in a general tumult burst into a convent where igor was found at his devotions tied a rope about his neck, and dragged him, a mutilated corpse, through the streets. The king, Yezioslav, called for a levy en masse of the inhabitants of Kiev, summoned distal feudal barons with their armies to his banner, and marched impetuously to meet the conquering foe. Fierce battles ensued, in which Sviatoslav was repeatedly vanquished, and retreated to Suzdal again to appeal to Georges for aid. Yeezy summoned the Novgorodians before him, and in the following energetic terms addressed them. "'My brethren,' said he, "'Georges, the prince of Suzdal, has insulted Novgorod. I have left the capital of Russia to defend you. Do you wish to prosecute the war?' "'The sword is in my hands. Do you desire peace? I will open negotiations.' "'War! War!' the multitude shouted. "'You are our monarch, and we will all follow you from the youngest to the oldest.' A vast army was immediately assembled on the shores of the Lake of Ilmen, near the city of Novgorod, which commenced its march of three hundred miles to the remote realms of Suzdal. Georges was unprepared to meet them. He fled, surrendering his country to be ravaged by the foe. His cities and villages were burned, and seven thousand of his subjects were carried captive to Kiev. But Georges was not a man to bear such calamity meekly. He speedily succeeded in forming an alliance with the barbarian nations around him, and burning with rage, followed the army of the retiring foe. He overtook them near the city of Periaslav. It was the evening of the 23rd of August. The unclouded sun was just sinking at the close of a sultry day, and the Vesper chants were floating through the temples of the city. The storm of war burst as suddenly as the thunder peals of an autumnal tempest. The result was most awful and fatal to the king. His troops were dispersed and cut to pieces. Yisioslav himself, with difficulty, escaped and reached the ramparts of Kiev. The terrified inhabitants entreated him not to remain, as his presence would only expose the city to the horror of being taken by storm. "'Our fathers, our brothers, our sons,' they said, are dead upon the fields of battle or are in chains. We have no arms. Generous prince, do not expose the capital of Russia to pillage flee for a time to your remote principalities there to gather a new army you know that we will never rest contented under the government of georges we will rise and revolt against him as soon as we shall see your standards approaching yezioslav fled first to smolensk some three hundred miles distant and thence traversed his principalities seeking aid georges entered kiev in triumph calling his warriors around him he assigned to them the provinces which he had wrested from the feudal lords of the king hungaria bohemia and poland then consisted of barbaric peoples just emerging into national existence the king of hungary had married euphrosine the youngest sister of jesiaslav he immediately sent to his brother-in-law ten thousand cavaliers the kings of bohemia and of poland also entered into an alliance with the exiled prince and in person led the armies which they contributed to his aid. A war of desperation ensued. It was as a conflict between the tiger and the lion. The annals of those dark days contained but a weary recital of deeds of violence, blood, and woe, which for ten years desolated the land. All Russia was roused. Every feudal lord was leading his vassals to the field. There were combinations and counter-combinations innumerable cities were taken and retaken to-day the banners of jesiaslav float upon the battlements of kiev to-morrow those banners are hewn down and the standards of george's are unfurled to the breeze now we see jesiaslav a fugitive hopeless in despair again the rolling wheel of fortune raises him from his depression and with the strides of a conqueror he pursues his foe in his turn vanquished and woe-stricken but the pomp of heraldry the pride of power and all that beauty all that wealth e'er gave alike await the inevitable hour the paths of glory lead but to the grave death which ysieslav had braved in a hundred battles approached him by the slow but resistless march of disease for a few days the monarch tossed in fevered restlessness on his bed at kiev and then from his life of incessant storms on earth his spirit ascended to the god who gave it Georges was at that time in the lowest state of humiliation. His armies had all perished, and he was wandering in exile, seeking new forces with which to renew the strife. Rostislav, Grand Prince of Novgorod, succeeded to the throne. But Georges, animated by the death of Yezioslav, soon found enthusiastic adventurers rallying around his banners. He marched vigorously to Kiev, drove Rostislav from the capital, and seized the sceptre but there was no lull in the tempest of human ambition george's had attained the throne by the energies of his sword and acting upon the principle that to the victors belong the spoils he had driven from their castles all the lords who had been supporters of the past administration he had conferred their mansions and their territories upon his followers human nature has not materially changed those in office were fighting to retain their honors and emoluments those out of office were struggling to attain the posts which brought wealth and renown the progress of civilization has in our country transferred this fierce battle from the field to the ballot box it is indeed a glorious change the battle can be fought thus just as effectually and infinitely more humanely it has required the misery of nearly six thousand years to teach even a few millions of mankind That the ballot-box is a better instrument for political conflicts than the cartridge-box armies were gathering in all directions to march upon george's he was now an old man weary of war and endeavored to bribe his foes to peace he was however unsuccessful and found it to be necessary again to lead his armies into the field it was the twentieth of march eleven fifty seven when george's entering kiev in triumph ascended the throne on the first of may he dined with some of his lords immediately after dinner he was taken sick and after languishing a fortnight in ever-increasing debility on the fifteenth he died the inhabitants of kiev regarding him as a usurper rejoiced at his death and immediately sent an embassage to davidovich prince of chernigov a province about one hundred and fifty miles north of kiev inviting him to hasten to the capital and seize the sceptre of russia kiev and all occidental russia thus ravaged by interminable wars desolated by famine and by flame was rapidly on the decline and was fast lapsing into barbarism davidovich had hardly ascended the throne ere he was driven from it by rostislav whom georges had dethroned but the remote province of Suzdal, of which moscow was the capital situated some seven hundred miles northeast of kiev was now emerging from barbaric darkness into wealth and civilization the missionaries of christ had penetrated those remote realms churches were reared the gospel was preached peace reigned industry was encouraged and under their influence moscow was attaining that supremacy which subsequently made it the heart of the russian empire the inhabitants of kiev received rostislav with demonstrations of joy as they received every prince whom the fortunes of war imposed upon them hoping that each one would secure for their unhappy city the blessings of tranquillity davidovich fled to moldavia there was then in moldavia between the rivers pruth and Sereth, a piratic city called berlad it was the resort of vagabonds of all nations and creeds, who pillaged the shores of the Black Sea and plundered the boats ascending and descending the Danube and the Danipur. These brigands, enriched by plunder and strengthened by accessions of desperadoes from every nation and every tribe, had bidden defiance both to the grand princes of Russia and the powers of the empire. Eagerly these robber hordes engaged as auxiliaries of Davidovich, In a tumultuous band, they commenced their march to Kiev. They were, however, repulsed by the energetic Rostislav, and Davidovich, with difficulty escaping from the sanguinary field, fled to Moscow and implored the aid of its independent prince, Georgievich. The prince listened with interest to his representations, and following the example of the more illustrious nations of modern times, thought it a good opportunity to enlarge his territories. The city of Novgorod, capital of the extensive and powerful province of the same name, was some seven hundred miles north of Kiev. It was not more than half that distance west of Moscow. The inhabitants were weary of anarchy and blood, and anxious to throw themselves into the arms of any prince who could secure for them tranquillity. The fruit was ripe, and was ready to drop into the hands of Georgievich. He sent word to the Novgorodians that he had decided to take their country under his protection, that he had no wish for war, but that, if they manifested any resistance, he should subdue them by force of arms. The Novgorodians received the message with delight, rose in insurrection, and seized their prince, who was the oldest son of Rostislav, imprisoned him, his wife and children, in a convent, and, with tumultuous joy, received as their prince the nephew of Georgievich rostislav was so powerless that he made no attempt to avenge this insult davidovich made one more desperate effort to obtain the throne but he fell upon the field of battle his head being cleft with a sabre stroke chapter four